Isn't it a sweet honor to again be able to assemble and to do so in the peacefulness of this hour? A Sunday afternoon, the first day of the week, even as we're gathered now. As I look over the audience, again, we're always thankful, as Brother Allen mentioned, for our membership and for visitors who've come our way. We're always delighted to be able to come together and to have as our desire and objective the honest and sincere worship as God has Himself ordained it. This evening, as we come to this portion of our lesson tonight, we will be looking at the book of 1 John in the New Testament. So a moment ago, Brother Greg read from the opening uh, couple of chapters of that book, chapter 2, verse 3, and we'll be looking at some of the additional features of that book of 1 John in our lesson this, this afternoon. In fact, you may already notice somewhat about the title. It is something that really is at least worthwhile of a bit of mention in passing. The title of the lesson this morning, you might recollect, was Maturity in Christ, What Do You Want? And we made use of the book of Ezra in the Old Testament as a reminder of those powerful appreciations of choice and work and frustration and purpose. This question is a bit different. Maturity in Christ, What Do You Know? Only a minor word in terms of change, but it'll be drawn entirely from the book of 1 John. I think we should develop somewhat about the nature of that word choice, and let's do so first with some introductory comments. These reminding us about the interesting question that is often asked. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, how often perhaps on a regular basis... Over the course of a week, you suppose either someone else asks it of you or do you and I ask it of someone else? What do you know? Often it's asked in a rather jestful fashion. It's asked in a noncommittal kind of fashion. It's often asked of someone who is a mere acquaintance. And it's not that you are desirous of them devoting the next six hours or so sharing everything they might possibly know about some subject. But tonight, it seems rather intriguing to me in the way the book of 1 John develops, that maybe we should rethink that question, at least in light of the blessedness of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you know? As you notice at the very bottom of that slide, and it is something so easy to appreciate, isn't it? The Word of God does place a rather remarkable emphasis upon the degree of one's knowledge, the appreciation of a set of facts that are absolutely and inescapably correct with respect to the Bible and with respect to the things of God. It's not as if there's any room for negotiation, any room for compromise. It would almost seem as if the book of 1 John is written in a way to remind those of that era of, of that interesting consideration and, of course, you and me as well. You'll notice among the verses to which I would point your attention the grandeur that comes with that notion of knowledge. That directly leads you to this. You probably can already sense that this word, what do you know? Maybe that's one of the key words of the book of 1 John. You'll notice on this slide, the book of 1 John is a rather brief book. It only has five chapters. At that point, just a little over 100 verses. It's rather short in terms of reading through it in its entirety. And you may notice on that particular slide that, in fact, the word know is one of the key words of this book of 1 John. So if you and I just remember that essence about the book, often at a moment's notice we would quickly be able to recollect one of the major themes and theses of this book. That word know, 
as you can well tell, occurs 38 times in these five chapters. 38 times John emphasized the fact that something is known or should be known, and he often presents that in a way to encourage them in matters which they unfortunately didn't know the way they ought to have. You'll also notice beyond that that this man John is known as the apostle of love, and love is the other key word of this book occurring 46 times in five chapters. When you and I put those two concepts and thoughts together, it puts before us a rather interesting set of studies about what do you know. You and I will find there are many things as Christians we know. In fact, tonight's lesson will perhaps be a bit unusual in that sense. I'm simply going to utilize the way John did it. And we're going to make a very brief listing, but a rather lengthy one at that, about some things you and I know as Christians. May I be quick to say that there are times when the world may disagree with us on some of these things, but that matters not, for God says we know it. And if you and I know, and by the essence of faith, we appreciate the thoroughness and the demand of that, that should be a great element and comfort to us. What do you know? You'll appreciate as we go forward in that slide that there are some interesting appreciations that serve as a bedrock linking together these two things. Remember, love on the one hand and that essence you can see of know on the other. John bases all of it, doesn't he? upon the essence of what you and I know about God's love in addressing the very feature of redemption for the human family. In fact, we'll find a number of these things we know traces right back to that truth. God is love, 1 John 4, verse number 8. God is love. When it comes to the demonstration of love, God is the principal illustration. When it comes to defining operationally or otherwise the essence of it, God is love. But on the other hand, man, you and me are sinners. How do you reconcile man the sinner to God the lover? Sometimes closing that chasm isn't always easy. And the human family struggles with it, but John puts before those and we alike the nature of how to close that chasm through the blood of Jesus Christ. There are some things we know. Let us then look with some care at some of the things John says you and I know. Let's begin like this. What do we know? Number one, we know the following. These aren't always taken in the order, by the way, that they come in this book. But the first thing is this. And John begins verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 with this observation. For you see, there were some in that first century era who were questioning, did Jesus really come in the flesh? Was this story that you and I read in the New Testament, was it a made-up presentation? It sounds good. Is it real? Did he really live in the flesh? Did he get hungry and did he cry just like you and me? Did he really suffer difficulties and problems just like you and me? Was he really tempted just like you and me? If ever that's questioned, we immediately lose our tie to the grandness of the fellowship that God wishes us to know. John starts this book by asserting, yes, he lived in the flesh, and there must be not the slightest question to that. It is true, isn't it, that you and I have now advanced almost 20 centuries since he literally set foot on this earth. 
But that does not in any way change the fact that He was here. And He has transformed forevermore the nature of what takes place and the blessedness that goes along with it. Notice chapter 1 again, verses 1 and following. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. John says, I saw him. Others could in fact make claim they touched him in some way. They shook hands with him. They shared residence in other places with him. Thus, one of the first considerations I would ask you to keep in mind with me is to never compromise even in the slightest the bedrock consideration, the Lord was here in the flesh. And that fact alone provides a great aid, doesn't it? In the notion of He is there to help you and me because He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, to borrow the language of Hebrews 4.15. In fact, earlier in that book of Hebrews, we read in Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18, the fact that He lived in the flesh having flesh and blood, if you please, allows Him to be one to whom you and I can go when we are overwhelmed with the problems of this life because we know He's there to help us and He's there to provide aid and He's there to provide the proper direction. So lesson number one, Jesus lived in the flesh. What about lesson number two? Verse number 7 of this opening chapter reminds us as Christians of a grand blessing which the world does not appreciate because it isn't given to them. In Christ, he says, verse number 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. There is something to be said about that blessedness that comes with continual cleansing from the blood of Jesus Christ. When you and I walk in the light, when we are pursuing daily the fellowship that is in the light of God, 1 John 1 verse 5, we can appreciate that there is a cleansing. Christ's blood is constantly cleansing your sins and mine. There are times when Christians... Somewhat are engulfed in fear. Someone asks, what if I allow a thought to cross my mind and just after that I am unfortunately killed in a car wreck? Am I doomed to hell because of that? You and I have every assurance that as Christians, those that are walking in the light of the God of heaven, that there is a continual cleansing attached to the blood of Christ and the verb tense that appears there is not one-time occurrence, it is continuous action, ongoing cleansing. As you can tell, though, what a statement that makes. If I ever thus fail to walk in the light, if I become careless and I become less than devoted to the duty of the Lord, you recognize that promise no longer applies to me. What a blessedness and, in fact, what a grand reward for those that walk in the light of God. Look at how that thought's developed. Isn't it true that that brings a confidence and an assurance to the life of a Christian? Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. To those that walk after the Spirit, again, eschewing the pursuit of the matters of the flesh, but those that walk after the Spirit, no condemnation. 
Isn't that a sweet thing and a marvelous consideration? What about point number three? What else do we know? So far, the two have been such a comfort to a Christian. Point number three. The last three verses of chapter number one. Highlight before us one more time, though, a fact that, again, sometimes the world prefers not to consider the reality of confession. When I do come to grips with failures, specifically in the recognition of needing, of course, the forgiveness of God in regard to them, if that's of a public way, for example, I need to bring that before others so that all can be made right in their consideration as well as in mine, and, of course, proper approach to God can take place. Confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 But even personally, there are times when you and I individually need to go to God and beseech His forgiveness as we confess something to Him. Has your heart ever been burdened with something that is very troubling? Some matter that perhaps no one else knows about you? A weakness of some kind? A characteristic flaw? Have you approached God individually and begged forgiveness for that? Confessed it to Him? Notice He has promised in His Word in this very text. Notice the way that it's presented in verse number 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You notice then what a place confession has. And as you and I rest upon that, it naturally brings us to the fourth one. Besides these first three... Look at what comes next as we give thought to number four. There is such a tremendous emphasis, isn't there? Often as you and I approach it in secular literature and otherwise on knowing God. Remember, well, I use that word as a part of the lesson tonight. What do you know? There are many quick to say, I know God. There is an absolute litmus test found in the Word of God. There is a way to know whether you know God or not. It's not left to subjective design. How do you know if you know God? Let's let John answer it. Let's let the Word of God through the Holy Spirit dictate it. You'll notice again in chapter 2, verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. There is the litmus test of knowledge in regard to God, isn't it? I know I know Him if I keep His commandments. It doesn't matter what else I may think or what others may think. There is the way I know if I know Him. So if God has said something in His Word and I have not and am not and will not do it, that directly says that I do not know Him despite what else I may claim. Isn't that amazing then how the human family has interjected their own thinking? Many have asserted that knowing God is a feeling in the heart no more and no less. That's absolute nonsense. Knowledge of God hinges on doing His commandments, and that is the way you know if you know Him. Look at some of the other ways that that thought's developed. Later on in this same book, verse 3 of chapter 5, on that occasion as John was during the close of this book of 1 John, he highlights that same thought in the following way. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. This is the love of God. 
So when one likes to issue or at least make statements about an extremeness and an abundance of love, notice love of God is keeping His commandments. It's no wonder then you and I can appreciate the directness and the thoroughness that gives us a way to know whether we love God. We might use this as a time then to ask it of myself as well as all of us individually. Do you love God? If you do, then we're faithful followers of His commandments. Number five, this love that we've highlighted so far, this love that we have for God that directly leads us to see, doesn't it, that in this same book of 1 John, there's a highlighted appreciation of that love for God then manifests itself as a love for God's human creatures, a love for other people. That by no means is anything new. John, in fact, highlighted himself. I write not a new commandment unto you. This was a commandment that had been enunciated since the days of the Master himself. Didn't Jesus, hadn't he made statements in John 13? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Is it any wonder then when we appreciate chapter 2, verse number 10, you notice a statement therein made relative to what John said about this subject. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Again, John wrote with great care, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. But yet that light was identified in chapter 1 as being associated to God, because in God there is no darkness at all. In God is light. And it's a blessed privilege to enjoy that fellowship with Him. What about love of others? Do we care about the souls of others, hoping that they might come to know the blessedness of the gospel that you and I have appreciated and ultimately obey it? Often the work that's considered in terms of benevolence, of course, is based upon our desire that perhaps by that mechanism they can come to appreciate that we are concerned about them. And ultimately they might listen to words we have to say about the Word of God. The love of others. You'll notice there's another passage to which I would turn your attention. It's in chapter 4, verses 20 and following, again in the book of 1 John. The statement therein made is probably one that so quickly comes to mind, but it reads like this. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Amazing, isn't it? It seems such a direct concept. And yet, how often might that be a matter to cross an individual's mind? I love God, someone would say, but then to turn around and have a degree of hatred or at least animosity towards someone else. What a powerful question. How can you love God whom you've not seen if you can't or do not love your brother who you have seen? What about then the love that exists in, in your life and mine for others? Do we earnestly have compassion and care hopeful that the gospel might reach them and that their physical welfare is good? That part leads us to number six. You'll notice there, what about the nature of sin? Here again is a matter of interesting definition. There are some who have a great controversy relative to what is sin. Is it merely a bad thought? 
Is it an improper motive? Here again, we find this book defines it, and you and I can know it. It is no longer in the realm of subjective consideration. I would ask you to look at chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 9. Here is a statement that seems to me is a very intriguing one found in the book of 1 John. I would ask you to notice the language. May I, in fact, use this occasion to say those two verses together have been the source of what some have asserted is an open contradiction in the Bible. Let's see what they each say. First, 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then forward to chapter 3, verse number 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. It may be that you have known someone at one point who has found themselves in an issue or a problem in life, and they say, I've prayed to God about this, and He has forgiven me. But I find myself in a while engulfed in the same thing again. A statement in which they on a verse like this would ask this question. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. They thus reason, if I was truly born of God, if I was a follower of Him, that verse says, I cannot sin, but yet I'm doing it again. What does that mean? Is that an inherent problem that God is unwilling to save me? How would you and I make, help them understand what that verse does say? To those who recognize the imperfections that come in life, what does it mean there when it says, He cannot sin? May I submit to you that there is an interesting difference in the way those verses read and in a powerful distinction in what they say. Let's put it all together and listen to what the Holy Spirit through John has to share with us. First, back to chapter 2, again, verse 1. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. I would ask you to notice that I put in parenthesis, I put in quotation marks the statement, ye sin not, again, based on that chapter 2, verse 1, and this statement, ye cannot sin, based on chapter 3, verse 9. The Greek text there presents those two very differently because the verbs are very different. Let me explain. First, ye sin not. That is a verb that has with it isolated, point-wise consideration. The latter one, on the other hand, is continuous, habitual sin. When you put them in understanding that way, it's easy to appreciate, isn't it? On the one hand, John says, you and I as Christians cannot possibly live a habitual, ongoing life of sin. That's fine. On the other hand, he says that you sin not. The instructions given to us in the Bible are such that we in strength and in powerful consideration could keep at bay those momentary sins. We are going to slip up. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to fall short of the glory of God as we often say it in prayer. You'll notice that's exactly the thought that John has before us. 
But you and I know this much. We cannot remain in a habitual, ongoing life of sin and claim fellowship with God. It cannot be. Those Greek verbs help us see that point so clearly. As you think about this nature of sin, notice in chapter 3, verse 4, it's then defined. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth the law of God, for sin is the transgression of the law of God. You and I remember then that as sin is described for us in these particular ways, transgressing God's law, whatever that may be, you and I now know exactly that sin's not just an influence or a motive or a feeling. It is a violation of God's will. What about number seven? You'll notice that in the midst of this book, he again brings back them and us to appreciate about this implication of love. He houses it in the language of those that are needy. I would ask you to notice verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You and I are often blessed to be able to provide for those that genuinely are in need. And notice that's the language that John uses. He doesn't just say provide a wish list for those who want more, but those that are in need. Our elders and others of our congregation here then try to look upon the needs which others are claiming and strive to meet those needs and not do it only by wishing them well, but to actually assist in meeting that need, be it food, be it other necessities that would go with life. Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need. To that person then who shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, the question is, how does the love of God dwell in that person? That's again something else you and I know. The love of God does not dwell in that person. You'll see then in light of that degree of knowledge, point number eight is this one. There's something else that John says we know. We know it with certainty. And we know it based on the language of chapter 5, verse 13. Let me ask you to reflect upon that passage, again nestled near the end of the book. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Question, is it possible to know that you're saved? That perhaps has been a source of some discussion and controversy throughout the ages. John says you can know it. May I submit then that removes it from the realm of, again, the subjective considerations that often come. You and I can know that we're saved. Now that does not in any way remove the power of the judgment of God at that day. But we can know that if we are following the commands of God as He's given them to us, we know the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And we know, of course, that in chapter 3 of this same book, it says to those in that situation, we shall see Him, and the hymn refers to Christ in 1 John 3 verse 2. We shall see Him as He is, for we shall be like Him. That's a promise of the Bible. Certain, definitive, and absolute. That's a great thing. It will be like Him. When the Lord was resurrected, 
Remember the amazing form that he was in? He was a spirit being, wasn't he? And yet we're told we're going to be like him. We'll be inhabited with a celestial body, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and following. It'll be a body fitted indestructibly and incorruptibly for the eternity that's ahead of it. You and I look forward to inhabiting a place like that. You'll notice we can know we have eternal life. May I ask then that you and I with confidence and with assurance appreciate what John instructed those of that day. It is true that there were many questioning the very things that you and I have so far learned through these eight matters tonight. A deeper and, shall I say, somewhat other motivated study can bring to bear some of the additional features that John was addressing, the, the various heresies and false teachers of the day. Maybe it's at this point we could interject the following thought in chapter 4, verse 1. John had something else to remind those of that day. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. There were false teachers of that day, and in chapter 2, verse 18, they're even highlighted as antichrists. You and I could add many more things to what we know. There are many today who think there's an antichrist yet to come. One being, one man, quite frankly. Somewhat interestingly, I heard just on a radio presentation, not more than about four days ago now, I suppose it was, about a preacher and he was speaking with such confidence about an antichrist yet to come and a rapture. I changed the channel. You give thought, John says... We know there were antichrists in the first century. There were many of them then. And you and I can know that we have eternal life as the faithful servants of the God of heaven. Number nine. The closing statements of chapter number five bring us to this observation. I'd like to encourage you to read or read along as I read before us. Beginning in verse number 15 of 1 John 5. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. On the one hand, there is a sin unto death, and John says there is a sin not unto death. You and I might wonder, what is the difference in these two things? Did you notice? He says, don't pray for the sin that's unto death. Apparently, prayer is not effective relative to that. What kind of sin is a sin not unto death? And what makes it different than a sin that is unto death? The book of 1 John identifies it like this for us. That sin that's not unto death is a sin of which that brother will repent. That's a sin that that individual can be approached with and he or she will, in fact, in confession and repentance, make that right and that will be forgiven by the very promise of God. That sin, though, that's unto death is a sin he won't repent of it for whatever reason. Perhaps in stubbornness, perhaps in obstinacy, 
perhaps due to the influence of false teaching, he will not repent of it, and therefore remaining in that, it can't be forgiven if he won't repent. Luke 17, 3. As a result, that's a sin unto death. And if he dies in that state, he's lost. Difference between sin unto death, sin not unto death, the person's personal response. Maybe having said all of that, we've looked at nine and time will permit us to use only one more. What else do we know? What about number ten? Let's end on a positive note. Born of God. You may notice that phrase has occurred a number of times in this particular book. And in fact, I've just selected a few of the occurrences because it seems to be such a powerful and emphatic phrase. Born of God. In fact, I would call to your attention that one born of God does not commit sin. We noticed that statement earlier. Furthermore, one born of God is a person of love and furthermore is an individual that believes Jesus as the Christ. Do you hear the certainty and see that with me in it? This person has no doubt about these things. Furthermore, this same individual overcomes the world. We often sing a song. I think we sang it last Lord's Day, in fact. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That statement is a direct quotation found in this book, 1 John 5, verse 4. And the one born of God is the one that is enjoying that victory. Are you overcoming the world or is the world overcoming you? Which side of that are you and I resting on? Might we notice one more? This one that's born of God keeps himself, as again stated in this very book, and finally, is not touched by the evil one. That evil one is the devil. That evil one is Satan. And yet we find the one who's born of God is not touched by that, by that being. Many things we know. Let me end the lesson the same way we started. What do you know? I trust that from the study of 1 John, we know a lot more than maybe we thought we did. Or at least we've been reminded tonight that we have a confidence and assurance and a deep-seated recognition of so many things in Christ that we know. Although the world may question them, although there are many who, perhaps for motives that are unknown to us, have called into question any number of these things, we know them. May we bequeath them to those that we love, our children, others that are parts of our lives, and may we, even ourselves, be strengthened day by day in the inner man, Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 25, in relation to the knowledge of things like this. What do you know? First John is truly, as are all the 66 books of the Bible, a great book. And these key words in it again are these, love on the one hand, as you and I have learned in the study tonight, and as we've thought about the attribute and the nature of that word love, we also notice that in this book is a highlight of these things that we know. Tonight, if you know that you're not right with God, it's time to do something about it. In the book of 1 John, as is true of seemingly all the New Testament books, assert it's time to do something to act on that knowledge don't linger and wait around. Why not make things right and allow the blood of Christ to cleanse you? After all, if you do that, you know that you have eternal life and you know that you're born of God. 
Isn't that a great knowledge? And tonight, if we could help you, be of assistance to you, that plan of salvation is something, again, that we know. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized. If you need to come back to your first love, remember 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, you've got to confess those sins. If they need to be confessed publicly, let us do that tonight and pray to God on your behalf. If we could help you in any way with those things, let's, may you act on the knowledge that you have and make things right with your God tonight. Why not come while together we stand and sing?